Welcome to episode 71, Identifying Typical and Atypical Early Child Development, Mental Health Impact, featuring Dr. Shiro Torquato, licensed clinical psychologist. By Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Today we are joined by Dr. Shiro Torcato. She is a licensed clinical psychologist in the state of California, and she has been licensed since 1996. She specializes in psychological evaluations and educational consultations for children and adolescents. Uh, Shiro, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So why don't you take a moment and tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to have this specialization in working with children and adolescents? Well, through my graduate training, in my doctoral program, we had a lot of great opportunities for testing and psycho- uh, for training and psychological testing. And I found I really enjoyed doing that with, especially with the young kids in our uh, psychology clinic at Auburn University, where I got my doctorate. And uh, when I came out to California for my internship, um, that was part of our internship requirements. So I did more testing and ended up, even though I worked with some adults, I really found myself enjoying working with parents and helping them with their kids and, you know, behavioral issues and things like that. Um, And then when I started my private practice in 1999, that's basically become my focus. This is clearly an area of passion for you. Yes. Um, How did it become that way that working with the little kiddos, what really stood out to you? Well, there were a number of things. Um, The key thing that kind of got me interested in this topic that we're going to discuss today is for years, even since my internship, I would work with parents who would tell me, you know, about their kids, about their five, six, eight, ten year olds who, when they were two years old or 18 months or even six months old, the parents had concerns, uh, concerns about their speech development, concerns about them not being able to play properly with other kids, severe tantrums, things like that. And I would, you know, ask them, well, what, what happened? Well, They often told me I went to my pediatrician and they said, oh, every kid's different. Give your child time. And the pediatrician would minimize the concerns. So oftentimes the child didn't get the help that they needed. And then I see them in the clinic or in my office several years later and realize, okay, something started a long time ago. Now we're seeing the manifestations of it in terms of the learning or the behavior problems. Got it. So for you, this is an opportunity for clinicians to learn what to keep an eye out for. Exactly. And even clinicians who work with adults primarily instead of with children or teens, um, some of the stressors that their clients are coming in with are often about their children or grandchildren. You know, if their child is doing poorly in school, for example, or um, having difficulty making friends or getting bullied or, um, you know, various things, that's a stressor for the family. And so that often comes into the therapy room, even when you're working with adult clients. Absolutely. So you bring up a a fundamental part of this. What does normal childhood development really look like? I think a lot of us in the field, we may have a class or two that talks about child development, but we really don't know that much about it. That's absolutely true. I mean, even my own training, you know, I consider myself a child psychologist. I had to make sure I got additional training on this. And uh, so we're going to spend a little time talking about that in in this podcast. Um, There are four main domains of child development 
that really need to be considered by a clinician uh, when they're either working with a child or a teenager, or as I said, with an adult client who has concerns about their children or grandchildren. So the four main domains that I look at include um, language and communication, social and emotional functioning, cognitive functioning, and that's related to learning, problem solving, and then later does affect learning in school. And then the physical development, and that's the walking, the fine motor skills, sometimes feeding problems. But I don't usually address that latter one, the physical development, because that's kind of more medical. And that's something that if a child is having a feeding problem or is not walking or, you know, is having some fine motor delays, um, a referral to a physical therapist or an occupational therapist usually can address that. That's really not something as mental health professionals we can, you know, we can address. Uh, But it's just information. You know, if the child walked really late, for example, um, it's information. Um, And so I guess I can go into now what to, to look for. What is normal? And then what to look for here or listen for when a parent is reporting to you or even a child or teenager is reporting to you when things go awry, okay? So I'm going to start with language and communication. And believe it or not, a lot of people don't realize this. And in fact, you would think most pediatricians should know this. Some do, some don't. Um, and not to speak you know, poorly about pediatricians, um, but I find that those that have been in practice for 30 or more years are the ones that tend to minimize uh, the, uh, the concerns parents have. Those who have been trained more recently, um, and I've worked with some wonderful pediatricians who send me referrals quite often, uh, they realize, okay, it may not be, it may be a psychological issue. It may be a developmental issue. Let's refer out to another professional, uh, whether it be a, a mental health therapist, whether it be a clinical psychologist, whether it be uh, a speech therapist, to be able to get more information. Um, And interestingly enough, um, I'm trying to remember, a few years back, probably about four or five years back, the American Academy of Pediatrics put out some guidelines for pediatricians to give them this kind of information because they realize not all of them are trained adequately. And some are wonderful about using those guidelines and others, not so much. So let me share what some of the things um, therapists should be looking for and listening for in terms of uh, what's normal child development. In the language and communication domain, one of the things you want to look for is um, by 12 months, a child should be babbling, making some kinds of noises. Usually they'll start doing mama, dada, those kinds of things. Between one and two years of age, they should start using some single words, okay? And by 18 months, typically, and granted, there's some variability, you know, five to six-month variability on either side, either earlier or later, but typically by 18 months of age, most children are putting, um, are using two to three word phrases, okay? So by the time they hit age two, their language is really expanding. You'll hear them using two to four word phrases, uh, repeating words overheard in conversation, which some parents have to be very careful about. (laughs) That's when they often will start using, learning the curse words and repeating (laughs) them, right? Um, They know names of familiar people and objects. And you see this kind of language explosion at that point. It's, It's a real, real interesting time. By age three, 
most kids are talking fairly well enough for family members and maybe, you know, some strangers to be able to understand in terms of how clearly their, their articulation is. They can carry on simple conversations, like two to three words, and they're usually able to um, follow instructions that have two to three steps. They don't necessarily do what you ask them to, but they have the ability to understand the instructions. Um, so, but between age four and five, when you ask a child their first and last name, they can tell this to you. They often can learn to sing songs and um, say sto short stories from memory. Uh most kids by age five can tell a simple story using full sentences and they should be speaking clearly enough, you know, pronouncing words, articulating words. So most adults and other kids could understand them. So that's kind of the key things that we're looking for. Now, what does it look like when there's a delay? Okay. So importantly, and it's interesting because I find parents telling me, oh yeah, he was such a good baby. He was such a quiet baby never cried, never did anything. That's not typical. <laughs> okay. Um, the very quiet baby before age 12 months is a concern. Um, if they have hearing problems or chronic ear infections, sometimes that will affect their speech development and they uh, will cry a lot or that you won't hear the babbling noises. You won't hear those kinds of things coming up. Um, and they don't seem interested when parents talk or gesture to them. They're just kind of on their own They because they're not processing the language and they're not using the language. Um, I'll tell a brief story. Um, this is actually a family friend, not a client, that um, we our sons were the same age, the older sons, and they had a little baby who we went on a trip together um, just for the day when the child was nine months old. And this was a happy baby. He never cried. He smiled all the time. He was very quiet. And he didn't make a noise. He just smiled. And I mentioned to my husband on this trip, I said, there's something wrong with that kid. He should be babbling. He should be trying to say mama, dada. He should be doing something. He should be making some noises. And I was told, don't say anything. It's not your business. <laughs> so I know as clinicians, that kind of comes up. We notice things, concerns, but you know, with family friends and, and family members, it's hard to kind of share that, those concerns. Um, it turned out this little boy um, at 12 months, they discovered he had chronic ear infections for many months and was losing his hearing. And so when it was discovered, they immediately did the, um, the ear tubes um, to drain the fluid in his ears. And he started making noise. And fortunately, within six months, his, his speech development was normal. But had that not been picked up, he would have probably lost a good part of his hearing and his speech would have been delayed. So it's little things like that when you notice those things. And this was not a kid who complained. He was a happy baby who was just really quiet. So, okay, moving on. So that's about what you want to look for before 12 months. Between the ages of one and two, you only hear a few words, um, mama, dada, or some sounds. Child's, a child with a delay in, in communication skills also tends to lack gestures. They're not going to point to things. They're not going to try and show things. Um, at this point, you see kind of the terrible twos oftentimes. Very common, very strong relationship between a, a lack of language skills and the frustration that comes with the tantrums when you see the terrible twos. Oftentimes, kids who have good language skills by age two don't show those kinds of tantrum behaviors because they're able to communicate and get their needs met. Um, they may also have difficulty getting along with other children because they cannot communicate their needs. These are the biters in preschool. 
<laughs> they don't know how to say, I want that toy. So they grab the toy or they bite the kid who has the toy. Um, they also may show, you know, some aggressive behavior as a result of that. And it's back, tied back in with this limited communication. By age three, children who have delays in speech and language skills, you see frequent tantrums. You may see physical aggression toward adults and peers. And the noncompliance is often there. And then by the time they hit age four or five, preschool age, early, you know, entering kindergarten, these children are not ready to go into kindergarten or even pre-K. They just don't have the ability to either express themselves or understand instructions well enough, depending on what type of a, a delay they have, to be able to learn. Um, they also seem to have a limited interest in learning things, either at home by their parents, learning letters, learning colors, or in a preschool setting. They're the kids that wander around and don't seem, quote, interested in learning. Um, and then they also may draw, withdraw in social situations because they're not at the same level in terms of other kids to communicate and get their needs met and play, um, you know, cooperatively. So there are a lot of things that could affect a child's what looks like behavior when, it's, when they have a speech delay. So now I'm going to talk a little bit about the social and emotional development, which was the second um, area and domain. Uh, by age two, these kids will start to imitate others physically and verbally. Um, they show excitement around other kids. They want to be around other children. At age two, they're still engaging in what we call parallel play. They'll be near another child and playing. They may show interest in what the other child is doing, but they're not interacting quite yet. Um, but they may include other kids in their play. And the favorite interactive game of two-year-olds is chase. <laughs> um, and they start to show more independence. Um, wanting to put their shoes on, wanting to do things on their own. By age three, you're seeing a lot more imitation of adult and peer behavior. They start learning to take turns in games, start learning to share. Um, and then if another child um, is hurt or crying or upset, there's some sense of, of I don't know if I'd call it empathy at that age, but there's a concern. They may look, they may go over to the child, they may direct an adult to try and help that child if that child is distressed. And um, by age three, there should, there should be an ability to separate easily from parents if they've had the experience of separation. And what I mean by that is a child starts preschool at age three and they've been with mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or family member um, most of the time prior to that, then it's a new experience for them to be separated and you're going to see some normal separation anxiety. But if a child has been in a daycare or preschool setting since they were a year and a half or two years old, um, and then they start showing, you know, a high level of separation that might suggest that there's something, you know, uh, in their development that's, that's not on track. Then we have between the ages of four and five, what you should see is children engaging in make-believe play. You should see a preference to play with peers rather than alone. They enjoy learning new activities. Um, they're beginning to learn to control their emotions. They're, you know, depending on their parent, they should be learning a little bit of delay of gratification. <laughs> um, and they want to be independent. They want to do things on their own. Um, and you might, you know, have them saying, no, I do it. Or, you know, I can, I can do it. I'm going to, you know, pour my old cereal and make a mess all over the counter. But that's what they want to do at this age. Um, so what, what are some symptoms that indicate a delay in social and emotional functioning? Before 12 months of age, they tend not to recognize familiar people. 
They don't want to play games involving back and forth play like peekaboo. There's not much of an interest. These are the kids that prefer to be just left alone in their cribs. And interestingly enough, I've had parents tell me, oh, they were such good babies. And what they meant was they just wanted to be left alone. They didn't want to be carried. They didn't want to be around other people. They didn't want to be around siblings. They were usually, you know, overstimulated by that. Um, so that's a concern. Between age one and two, um, they're not doing what we call kind of social referencing, meaning they see something and point to it to get an adult's attention to that object. Um, they're not imitating either language or, or physical activities. Uh, they're not noticing or reacting when a parent or caregiver leaves the room. It's just like, it doesn't matter whether they're here or, not, or there. Um, and then they, lose, they may lose some skills. And this is a huge red flag. If a parent shares with you, um, my child was talking and then they stopped. My child was walking and then they stopped. Um, my child wanted to be around other kids and was playing fine in daycare. And then suddenly that changed and they were isolating. That Those things, when you see a, a change, I should say a loss of previously acquired skills, that's a huge red flag that needs to be um, looked at. Um, Something a lot of clinicians think about, and this is really important to think about, is uh, attachment at this age. As I mentioned, sometimes they don't notice or react when a parent or caregiver leaves. That almost sounds like an insecure attachment, and it might be, but that's also part of the child's development. So it is a piece that needs to be considered, especially if you're walk, uh, working with a child who, um, you know, was in foster care or, you know, uh, removed from the home, multiple caretakers, even within the family. Attachment is something that definitely needs to be considered and can, you know, affect the social and emotional development. So that's important to keep in mind. Um, by age three, there's a lack of interest in peers. These are the children that prefer to play alone. Um, they tend not to make eye contact oftentimes. They lack make-believe play, lack an interest in make-believe play, lack the ability to do it. They may just engage in some repetitive play instead. Um, and interestingly enough, again, with the attachment thing, you might see severe separation anxiety at age three with these kids. Um, and that's not the typical age you would see to separation anxiety with typically developing kids. Between ages three, uh, four, and five, these are the kids that are really not interested in other children. They tend to ignore them and want to play alone. They may also lack interest in people outside of the family. They also may show extremes in behavior like aggressiveness, severe anxiety, fearfulness. Um, and these kids are often withdrawn. And so there are a lot of things that we want to look at. Um, sometimes you see kids, and again, this may be attachment issue as well, that are have poor boundaries with strangers. I mean, I've had parents tell me about they'll go to the mall and or they're in a restaurant and a child, their child will get up and go and start a conversation and crawl into a lap of a total stranger or try and eat their food. <laughs> you know? This is not typical behavior, but it's an indication of some type of a delay in social emotional development. Um, should we move on to cognitive development or do you have a, another question? Well, one of the things that I'm hearing as you talk about it. Uh, is the difficulty, I think, for parents in identifying some of these things. Um, that's been my experience in working with parents when their children have been eventually recognized and diagnosed with 
whether it's a learning disability or a hearing difficulty or, or um, something that's neuroatypical, let's right. say, it's so difficult to get to that point. And the other thing I've seen is just, of course, so much emotion, so much fear coming yes. from families. And you know, you haven't you haven't even touched on yet the cognitive and the physical piece, but even coming down to those really terrifying questions in a parent's mind of like, oh my gosh, is this normal? Mm-hmm. And and I'd like after you've gone through the cognitive and physical pieces that are normal and what's more atypical, I'd like to spend some time talking about how we can support parents and families when they're in that zone of like, oh my gosh, you know, is, is, is this okay? Right. How long do I assume that it's fine? Cause a pediatrician would have noticed or would have said something if something was a little bit different. That's a really good question. Okay. We'll get to that. That's, that's a very good point because most parents know they have some instincts and something's not right, especially if they have an older child as a reference point. And their younger one is not developing speech or is not walking or doesn't want to play with other children. They're like, mm, this is different. Um, and uh, so that that's something that definitely needs to be addressed. So let me kind of quickly go through the cognitive development and then we'll get to that. Um, so what is typical? By age two, they should be sorting colors and shapes, you know, learning to, to b- build things with blocks, um, naming common items in picture books. Um, something to point out is most of what I'm talking about is under the assumption that the child has an opportunity and is in a nurturing environment to be able to have those opportunities. So if you have a severely neglected child, for example, uh, who's, um, you know, in a home with a substance abusing parent or exposed to domestic violence, all of these things, you know, can definitely, as all clinicians know, will affect the child's um, development. So that part of the history is also important. Um, I've worked with a number of kids who've been adopted, uh, both internationally and in the United States, and some of their histories and their, you know, presumed or known um, genetic histories with their own biological parents is a huge factor that needs to be considered. There's a lot of information that when you're working with these kids, um, but when I'm talking about kind of what's typical. Uh, it's under the within the context of um, uh, a nurturing family environment, what, whatever that is. However many parents, grandparents, but a nurturing family environment to give the child, you know, opportunities to to learn these things. Okay, so um, for example, if you don't have any blocks to play with and are limited toys, and your only you know form of entertainment is an iPad, that's going to limit some of the things that you're going to learn to do. So by age three they're starting to understand concepts of two or more. They're able to copy a circle with a pencil or crayon, um, the playing make-believe with dolls or animals or people. And they can usually, you know, problem solve, like putting together simple puzzles. Between ages four and five, um, if they're taught, if they're given exposure, and most kids are um, in our in our culture, at least in, in the United States, name colors and some numbers or letters, um, remember parts of stories or TV shows they've seen. Um, they can start copying letters and numbers if they're taught this. Uh, understand concepts of same and different. Uh, they can play simple card or board games like Candyland. Um, and they can remember and follow two to three part instructions. Now, granted, yes, that's partly a language skill, but if they don't have the cognitive skills, then that's going to be hard for them. So what symptoms indicate a delay in cognitive abilities? 
These are kids, and, and the cognitive delays are across the board. They're physical, language, emotional, and cognitive. Um, a child may not crawl or walk before 12 months of age. Um, what is considered, I'm just going to tap on this, uh, touch on this, is um, by 15 months of age, if a child is not walking by 15 months of age and some kind of a physical problem like cerebral palsy has not been identified, beyond 15, up to 15 months is considered within the normal range of walking. Beyond that is a delay. So that's something to, to kind of be aware of. Um, they don't search for things that are hidden. Um, if something just disappears or falls, they forget about it. They don't learn gestures. Um, they don't know what familiar objects are used for. Uh, they don't imitate words. Um, they can't work simple work simple puzzles, excuse me, simple toys like puzzles, turning handles, different things like that when they're given opportunities to play with toys. Um, they tend to resist learning new skills. These are the children that as the parent is trying to potty train or teach them something, um, put their shoes on, getting dressed, there's a lot of resistance to learning those new skills. Um, and uh, oftentimes related to that, um, oh, and also lack of interest in learning pre-academic skills like uh, colors, letters, you know, writing their name. And we see a lot of tantrums with these kids. We see a lot of fearfulness with these kids. We see a lot of avoidant behaviors with these kids. Um, I've had a couple of families over the years that um, the parents kind of felt guilty because by the time I see the child at age six or seven, um, they're saying, oh, we spoiled him. So that's why, you know, he can't tie his shoes. We spoiled him. That's why he won't eat on his own. Um, and what we find is that, um, as I mentioned earlier in the social emotional development, and it applies to the cognitive development as well, a child who is developing typically wants to be independent. They want to show that they can do these basic skills. The children who don't have those skills, usually due to cognitive limitations, don't try to do it on their own. So it's not a matter of spoiling the child. It's a matter of the child has some level of awareness or just doesn't have the skill to put their own shoes on, you know, to feed themselves. Um, and so the parent usually as a need, because I got to get the kid out of the house <laughs> with shoes on, or they got to get a meal in them, will do the skill for the child. Um, and so it's not a matter of spoiling. It's a matter of, you know, you're assisting the child because the skill is limited. So okay. I think that's important. Um, and then, um, so to kind of bring that all together, and as I said, um, the physical development is important, but as mental health clinicians, that's something that we don't address so much. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. But mainly the things to understand is when you're looking at and thinking about, you know, so language development, social emotional development and cognitive development in a child, these are things that later on come into our offices as tantrums and learning disabilities and, you know, uh, severe anxiety, uh, whether you're working with a child, a teenager, or even the parents and grandparents of these these kids who've had these experiences. Thank you for giving us such a thorough overview of some of the things that we really ought to be paying attention to. Um, it sounds like all of these domains are interacting, and when one area is lacking, it affects the other three. Yes, it definitely can impact the other three. And the interesting thing is we often see this as, quote, behavior. And I think that's one of the things that 
that I'm really passionate about this topic is that the behaviors on the surface, that's what we see. That's what's observed in school by parents, by teachers, by coaches. But what's underneath that, what is driving that, what is the the history and the roots of that behavior is really where the intervention needs to happen. And we can understand that better than just looking on the surface. Um, it, there's a lot more progress for the child. One of the things that I've seen and, and touched on upon a little bit ago was um, the the inevitable feelings from a parent of wondering, you know, if if something is different about their child, and then also even what to do about it. When you're in a position where you see that there are some differences, some delays, how do you have that conversation with a parent or with a family member when something is a little different? Well, it's interesting because, as I said, most parents have some sense, um, but they get feedback from family members when a child is tantruming, for example, because their speech is delayed. Uh, Oh, just spank him. You know, this is a discipline problem. And then the parents question, you know, what they're feeling, what they're sensing. They go to a pediatrician and the pediatrician, oh, let's just wait, you know, give the child some time. Every child's different and then nothing happens. Um, Oftentimes I get parents into my office. They found me either through their insurance or through a therapist or a family friend. In fact, one mom called me and said, I overheard two moms talking in the grocery store (laughs) and your name came up. Things like that because parents talk. Um, but, um, I think the thing is, is parents should really try and seek more information is the first thing. Uh, second thing is that when they get this information, hopefully it's presented to them and I'll tell you how I do it in a very positive and caring manner of this is where our starting point is. This is where your child is now. For example, As you mentioned, one of the things that I specialize in is psychological evaluations. And with even young kids, I do some developmental evaluations because some of the psychological testing, they're, you know, a three or four-year-old is a little too young to be administered. Um, And so we're looking more at development. But um, I sit with the parents and I say, you know, your child has some strengths and weaknesses. I'm going to share this information with you, but I want you to understand that by the time we finish this conversation... One, I'm going to have some specific recommendations for you of where to go from here to help your child. And more importantly, this is your starting point. This is baseline. So from here, things will get better. And that is very reassuring to parents that I said, this is the information of where your child is now. It's better we found this out now than when they were 16 or 18 or 20. We're knowing this now at 10, let's say, for example, or you know, even younger. And um, they need to be able to process. And I think that's the point you're getting at is when they hear their child has autism, or they hear their child has a learning disability, or they hear their child is severely depressed, and, you know, needs to be in therapy and needs to be possibly, you know, evaluated for medication. That's really hard for parents, because it's like, you always hope as a parent that your child is going to be okay. Your child is going to be quote, normal. Um, But what I find with a lot of these parents is they're open, they're coming to me or they're going to a therapist because they know something's not right. And they want somebody else to validate for them, you know, one, my instincts are correct. 
something's not right. And number two, what can I do to help my child? And that's really what their focus is, is how to help their child. I can hear, as you say, the importance of uh, doing something that, that I've kind of termed holding the hope. Yes. Yes. That it can be an opportunity, as you said, a starting point to engage parents in that dialogue and then offer them practical resources. And I know for me as a therapist, not having a specialization like this, it has sometimes been difficult to know how to support families. And and you and I could probably have a whole separate conversation about access to resources and appropriate mm-hmm. psychological testing and all of that, um, but that it, it can be so terrifying. And I've worked with families that have older children that were diagnosed either very late, that they kind of slipped through the cracks when it came to the school system and, and they just kind of kept going up through grades and like, oh, you know, it's it's fine. Um, Or even if the children were diagnosed when they were younger, so much grief still in the parents about, you know, I I wondered at age two, if this thing was okay. And then eight years have passed. And then it's come to fruition that the child's having a lot of behavioral problems. Mm -hmm. And they finally do the testing. One thing that I see is just how much grief there's been in these families. Yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it is grief, Um, especially if it's your only child. That's really hard. But what I find, and I'm very, you know, um, optimistic, and I share that with them from the very beginning. And I tell the child, when I meet the child or the teenager, what has been a struggle for, what's been hard for you? And when they tell me, and I said, well, this is what we're going to do. We're going to make this better. We're going to make school better for you. We're going to make this better for you. Uh, And add that, as you say, that sense of hope. I said, a year from now, you're going to look back and say, wow, was it really that bad? And you're going to see the improvements if you follow the recommendations. If you do nothing, but, you know, the parents want to help their children. They're going to follow them. It also sounds like the importance of encouraging compliance mm-hmm. with whatever that recommendation is. Um, you touched on earlier um, how some of these factors can impact mental health. I've seen that in my practice. I've worked with parents that they'll have a child that appears to be very, very clingy, won't get out of the parent's bed, won't sleep independently. And we're talking a four or five, six-year-old child, not a not an infant. And that when there was further investigation, it was that there, there were cognitive delays that were impacting um, the child's, I think, self-efficacy in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. Um, can you talk a little bit with us about how these different... Um, delays can impact mental health? Um, well, in a lot of ways, as I said earlier, we see this in the behavior and whether the behavior is the cleanest, tantrums, anger issues, uh, difficulties in school, um, disrespectful behavior, uh, fighting with peers, not making friends, being severely withdrawn. Uh, you know, these these are a lot of these things that Literally, every child that I've worked with, when I do this this thorough, you know, developmental assessment, and I'd like to touch on some of the th- questions that the clinicians need to ask when they're working with these families. Um, there's a link. There's a clear link, and usually you go back far enough. Like, ah, that's where it started. So maybe this is a point where it'd be good to to address that. So um, during the initial intake interview with a parent, whether you know, myself as an evaluator or a therapist uh, doing um, an intake interview, there's specific questions that when I work with parents, I always ask, whether it's a teenager or a child I'm working with. Um, And this helps drive 
my clinical impressions with a therapist, it would help drive their diagnostic impressions as well as treatment planning. You know, what do they need to focus on in the therapy, whether it's with the child, the teenager, the family, or the parents? Um, The first question I ask is, when were you first concerned about your child? Now, this is quite interesting when I'm talking to the parents of a 15-year-old because I try and get them to go as far back as they can remember. And I can tell you, most of the time, (laughs) it's before third grade. And even when I eventually meet with the teenager and I ask them the question, when did you first notice school was hard for you? These are the kids who are struggling in school and failing their classes in high school. And 90% of them tell me about third grade. So it goes way back. Um, The second question, which, you know, we probably have on our intake paperwork is, what is going on now that you are seeking professional help? Something's changed. Something has not changed. And many parents tell me, oh, yes, you know, at age two, at age three, at age four, I'm seeing the child at age eight. And the common reason they tell me they're coming in now is we were hoping they would grow out of it. And it's just getting worse. So they realize this is not going to change without some intervention. And I'm sure therapists get that same thing as well. Oh, you know, just thought he'd grow out of it. The older brother was like that at two and he grew out of it. But this child is eight and is still having severe tantrums on a daily basis. And I I think that's one of the things that also makes it really confusing for parents and also for clinicians is that there is such a wide range of what's developmentally normal Mm -hmm. and then also trying to identify the things that are outliers. Um, I mean, even thinking about temperament, uh, my son is four and he has a friend that is, you know, I believe completely normal and neurotypical and his temperament is just a very, very different. And so Mm -hmm. our joke as parents is like Hulk smash, you know, because he's just this kid that is just very boisterous. And my son is just this very gentle little thing and and they have such a huge difference in their behavior, but it's all behaviorally normal. Right. I think it gets so nebulous that even as parents or providers, it gets kind of confusing and the importance of having people like you that can really hone in on, yes, this this is within the range of normal and this is where we're starting to step outside Mm -hmm. of that into something that's a little more atypical. Well, one of the things I ask parents to kind of address that that exact issue of how far is this out of the norm um, is I ask them, have were teachers ever concerned? And the reason is because the teachers have a large reference point. If they're experienced teachers, they could have worked with hundreds, if not thousands of children. You know, and if they've taught the same grade level for many years, they know what is typical third grade. They know what is typical first grade. And most of the time, especially the children who later get diagnosed with ADHD, the kindergarten teacher noticed something. The first grade teacher noticed something. And so that's an important piece of information, even if the parents weren't concerned until the child hit middle school. Okay. So that's that's one way of kind of getting a sense of, of uh how much of this is is within the the wide range of of typical, especially when it's related to personality or temperament. Um, the another question I ask parents during the intake interview is: Were there any concerns about your child's speech or speech development? Um, oftentimes, even if they're speaking fine or their articulation is fine when they're eight or ten or fifteen years old. If there was some type of a speech delay, as I alluded to before, that does impact. There's an interesting relationship, and I see this with kids who I, I 
do evaluations for dyslexia or learning disabilities in reading and writing is that many of them, there's, there's a clear relationship between children who have speech delays, especially in articulation on pronouncing words and later reading development. As a child is starting to read, to learn phonic sounds, the sounds of letters, if they are misarticulating a lot of the sounds in speech, it's very difficult to make that connection because they don't hear things and they don't say things the same way as a child with typical speech development would in terms of learning phonics. So there's that relationship. Um, and then the other question I asked them, and so that's in kind of the communication domain we talked about. And then the other thing I asked them, which is really important, uh, which is in the social emotional domain, domain is how did your child or does your child get along with other children? Um, oftentimes, if it's a learning concern, that doesn't even come up. The parents don't even bring that up until I ask them. And then I hear, well, you know, she can make friends, but she loses them. Or, you know, other kids think he's bossy. Or, you know, the teacher has shared with us that whenever they do group work, my child argues with the other kids in the group. Um, those are the kinds of things that make me kind of look at, okay, are we dealing with some, you know, social and emotional concerns as well uh, in terms of friendship and social skills and those kinds of things. Um, these are also the kids that are often described as, quote, immature. Um, they are retained in kindergarten or their preschool teacher says, eh, let's have them go to TK, transitional kindergarten. They're smart enough, but they just don't have the social skills to be able to do well in kindergarten. Those are kind of the, the things that I hear from parents that are give me some, you know, I want to dig deeper. I want to get more information. And so the main things are, when were they first concerned? What is it that now they're bringing the child in or the teenager in for services? Um, was Were there any concerns about the speech development? And then finally, how, you know, friendships and social skills, how does your child get along with other children? So those are the, the four main questions. And if you hit each of those, you get a lot of data. You get a lot of information about these different domains that we've talked about. Thank you. I appreciate you outlining those questions. And you also mentioned um, potentially asking, were teachers ever concerned? And when did you first notice that school was hard for you? And mm -hmm. asking a child, at what point do you as a clinician stop asking these questions in adulthood? Or, or in your assessment, are you always going to ask some version of these questions to an adult to also assess kind of where they are in their, um, that, in, that's, in their lives? That's an excellent question. And I do, I don't do it as often, but I do evaluations with adults. Um, and when I do that, most common referral question is ADHD, right? Um, and when I do that, how I, I, I try and get as much information from them as they can recall. How they did in school is a critical question. Um, did they get in trouble for talking out or being the class clown? Did they get their work done? What were their grades like? Uh, and again, when do the problems start? Whenever possible, I try and get collateral information. And if we're talking about somebody who's in their 20s or 30s, there's usually a parent around if they still have a relationship. And I get a release of information and I communicate with that parent. If they're older and there isn't a parent around, if they had an older sibling that they would be willing to participate in the evaluation as a collateral. I get a release, of course, and then contact that sibling. 
Um, occasionally there have been an aunt or an uncle or some other, you know, important family member who knew this individual when they were during childhood, they spent a lot of time with them. And so, yes, it's, it is important because, um, I mean, one example is, uh, I did a presentation a few years back on sensory processing disorders, which might be a topic that we can do another podcast in, cause that's a whole other <laughs> world. Um, and afterwards I had one of the clinicians come to me and say, I do couples therapy and I work with a lot of couples with intimacy issues. And this particular um, gentleman that I'm working with doesn't like to be touched. And, you know, it's got to be on his own terms. And he, you know, doesn't like to be in crowds. And as this clinician is telling me, you know, I thought this was like a fear of, of commitment when in fact, what you were describing as a sensory processing disorder is probably what this young, this man has had since he was a young child. And so it kind of opens up this possibility of, yes, there were some developmental issues early, early on that are now being manifested as anxiety, depression, you know, uh, occupational issues, marital issues when the person's an adult. I think you bring up a really good point. I've had a couple of situations in working with college students that have had um, things like undiagnosed ADHD or undiagnosed autism spectrum disorder. And at the point that I see them, their self-esteem is just shot. Mm. They feel so awful about themselves and feel like everybody else got the memo and they didn't. And, and I've learned to dig a little deeper and figure out some of these kind of questions of like, when did, when did you notice that that was happening? Mm -hmm. And then I am referring out to people like you for a more in-depth evaluation. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes it's come back and revealed that there was something that was there really for years that slipped through the cracks um, and how much that affects self-esteem. Absolutely. And it's interesting because I get a number of referrals from therapists like you and others in the community. And oftentimes they're seeing teenagers or young adults for problems with depression and anxiety. And they know there's something else going on. You know, their clinical judgment is there's something here. This is, this is not new. This has been going on for a long time, but there's a route to it. Then I get the referral for psychological testing. And that's when the, the, the real digging starts, the real investigative work, so to speak, starts. And the trajectory I have consistently seen with these teenagers is in elementary school, there was anxiety, there was bullying, there was academic issues. They had a bad teacher that just made them feel stupid. Um, then they get to middle school, they continue to struggle. Mom and dad take everything away because, you know, they're getting bad grades. So they're having negative experiences year after year after year. And then, then what happens? You get depressed. You feel bad about yourself. School is an anxiety-provoking environment to be in. And so now they're coming into the therapist's office with anxiety and depression. But this is the typical trajectory I, I see over and over again with these teenagers. It's, it's remarkable. That leads me to my next question. How does having the correct diagnosis affect our treatment planning? What do we need to keep in mind? Wow. <laughs> We have time to get into that. I'm going to try and make that brief. It makes a huge difference. It really does. Let me give a quick example when I've done this seminar and it kind of delineates it nicely. So coming into your office, you have a 15-year-old girl with school refusal. She's a sophomore, I mean, a freshman in high school, second semester, she won't go to school. So one scenario is uh, she had some mild anxiety um, starting high school. It got to be very severe. 
no trauma in her history, no learning issues. It's just this adjustment to high school is very difficult for her, and she's developed an anxiety disorder. Scenario one, your treatment plan is going to be problems-focused, um, involve the school, involve the family. It's probably going to be short-term therapy. Another 15-year-old girl comes into your office, freshman of high school, in a year in high school, and she's refusing to go to school. You take the history, you ask the questions we went over, and you find out she was anxious from the time she was four years old. School refusal was a common problem. She complained of stomach aches, headaches, everything from the time she was in kindergarten all the way through. She had difficulty making friends. Um, she was very withdrawn. A lot of issues from the time she was very young. And now she's in high school and it's just too much to be in this environment. That's a very different treatment plan because this is a chronic problem you're dealing with. This is not kind of an adjustment issue like the first child. When you're looking at those issues that have some more chronicity, how do you start cracking that nut given your background and specialization? Um, start asking the questions. You know, you get, you get the data from the history. You do that developmental intake. You ask those questions. And oftentimes, and this is what I find most interesting, is oftentimes giving the family and even the teachers, if appropriate, with, you know, sign releases and everything, uh, information about this is not a new problem. The child is just being stubborn now, where the child just doesn't want to go to school. This is something the child has been dealing with for years. And I think that I, I, I know the empathy and the compassion that the adults in this child's life have that wasn't there before suddenly comes out. They start wanting to help the child in a different way rather than punishing them or assuming they're being lazy or unmotivated. It just is a shift. And as that shift happens and the support comes in and the empathy comes in and the, how are we going to make this better for you rather than you have to do it this way, um, which is usually the stance that a lot of parents take when they're frustrated with a child not doing well in school. Um, that shifts for the child completely. And you see this sense of, I don't have to do this alone anymore. The depression improves, the anxiety improves, you know, interacting with the school improves, their grades improve when they start getting appropriate support in school. As you're talking about, I can hear the importance for the parents and for the child of providing psychoed, giving them resources, telling them yes. here, you know, here, here's what we see alongside these symptoms. Here's what you may have experienced and how normalizing mm -hmm. that can yeah. be. And that. one of the things that I do is one of my services is after I've done this evaluation and I feel strongly that the child needs more support at school, whether a special education evaluation, whether a 504 plan with some accommodations, um, I will go with the parents to interface with the school. Um, I'll go to these meetings with them. I'll support them. I'll help communicate for them. And the child, I've been in these meetings with the teenager is literally sitting next to me and I'm checking in with them like every few seconds. Do you want to answer? Do you want me to answer? Um, and giving them as much support as possible because this is the first time they've ever been in an environment where it wasn't like, you're doing something wrong. These people are actually there to help you. You mentioned things like a 504 and IEP. One of the difficulties that I've had is when we have students that are in private schools mm -hmm. that don't have the same requirements. And I've often experienced, at least in California, that sometimes they're actually better off getting out of a private school system and into the public school where they might have resources. 
how do you work just for for a moment if you could explain how do you work with private schools that aren't bound by the same laws it's interesting because a lot of the private schools in the Caneo Valley in Simi Valley Thousand Oaks uh, Westlake um, they're actually making changes and most of them if they're Catholic schools they are bound by a system um, I'm drawing a blank on what it's called a step plan they're required to set up a step plan for their students, which is very similar to the public school's 504 plan, where they will provide accommodations. And this is something that came from the Los Angeles uh, Archdiocese of California. Um, and so some private schools are doing that. Uh, schools like Oaks Christian and some of the others actually have resource centers at their school for students with um learning issues, ADHD, and they provide some services, tutoring and other things and support. Uh, Sierra Canyon is another one that does that as well. So surprisingly, a lot of these private schools are providing these services. Oftentimes, the parents may have to pay extra for it, but it's there. And in the schools, in some of the smaller private schools where those services are not there, there are a couple of things to consider. One, there have been situations where I have recommended to a parent that they actually transfer the child into public school because the resources are there that they cannot, the, the child's needs are so high and the resources are there they can't get in the private school. The, in most cases though, um, there are so many uh, providers in the community, educational therapists, speech therapists, of course, the, you know, mental health therapists that can provide and supplement the services that the child needs, whether it's treatment for anxiety, you know, learning disabilities, ADHD, um, you know, psychiatrists as well. Uh, then I enter, I, I have this whole, you know, community, so to speak, that I interface with and refer to uh, that uh, I recommend to the parents who have kids in private schools. And most of the time, they have the financial resources to be able to to access those private services. I'm glad that you brought up those different resources, because in California, obviously, other states are going to have different laws that, um, that may necessitate services for kids that have different needs. Mm -hmm. And what I'm hearing primarily is the importance of supporting parents in asking for the resources, right. that unless they're necessary, the school may not be advertising, private or public, that that's available as an option, and helping parents know that they can ask people, they can ask the school system for more assistance or mm -hmm. referrals. Right. In fact, legally, a child in public school, if the parent reaches out to the public school system, excuse me, I said that wrong. Legally, a child in a private school, if the parent reaches out to the public school system in their school district, they are legally obligated to do some type of assessment of the child, even if they're in private school. Um, and sometimes they'll, they'll offer services like a speech therapy once a week that the parent will bring the child to one of the public schools to get the service. So that is available at times. Um, Thank you for bringing that up as another resource. If a therapist has concerns about a child's development, to whom should they refer the parents to get help other than just within the school system? Who do you recommend? Well, several tiers. As I said, there are many pediatricians who minimize parents' concerns, but there are also a lot of great pediatricians out there who do listen. So that's where I would go first, is discuss your concerns with the child's pediatrician or your family doctor. Um, I think the second thing is, um, even if you get, you know, if even if you don't feel heard, then start asking for specific referrals. If, you're ch if you see, if you have concerns about this child's speech development, ask for a referral to a speech therapist. 
There are many in the community. Many of them also take insurance. So you can contact your insurance company and get a referral. If we're talking about behavior or learning um, or social emotional development, then request a referral to a child psychologist like myself or a clinical psychologist that does the psychological testing. Um, also, a lot of families don't know, and even pediatricians surprisingly don't refer, is if a child is between the ages of birth to age three, every state has an early intervention program for them. In California, it's called the Regional Center. And regardless of where you live in the state, you can Google Regional Center and there will be one in your area. If it's in another state, it's usually the Department of Developmental Services. And they have um, intervention, they have assessment services where they will assess the child's speech development, um, physical development emotional development, and they will provide early intervention services until the child's age three, funded by the state. It is free to the family. Some of it is in-home services as well. And the kids consistently that get early intervention, by the time they hit elementary school, they are doing so much better, if not completely developmentally on track compared to kids that don't get those services, even if the parent had concerns, and then they enter elementary school. So early intervention works. After age three, the school districts, a lot of th parents think, well, you know, it's not until they enter kindergarten. In fact, by federal law, from age three up until age 18, well, in some cases up to age 21, the public school district in your area is responsible for giving services. And they, every school has a preschool program. So after your child turns three, you can contact the local school district or refer your client to contact the local school district. And on every website, they will have a section on how to get an assessment for your preschooler. These, again, are free of charge. Uh, they will assess your speech development, um, social development, physical development, and pre-learning and behavior. And if the child requires services like speech therapy, the school district will provide it free of charge. If they have enough delays that they would benefit from bringing us being in a special education preschool program, the school district provides that as well. So there are quite a number of services and ideally children who get these early services when they get to kindergarten and enter the public school system or a private school system, a private school in kindergarten, um, they, they tend to do a lot better depending on how severe the delay is. And if it isn't completely remediated, then they will continue to get those services when they get to kindergarten. Thank you for sharing that information. I think that's so helpful in knowing what uh, resources are available because mm -hmm. for some families, they simply don't have the opportunity to use insurance and have high copays and it's just not reasonable. Right. It's great to know that within the school systems, it's something that's mandated to be covered. Mm -hmm. Um, when it comes to providing psychoeducation to families, what are some of the resources that you recommend or websites that you found helpful to kind of cover some of these, um, the basics, some of what you've talked about today? Mm -hmm. Where can we, we recommend um, parents go? Then go to my website. <laughs> I'll give you the address for that in a second. Um, I have a number of articles that I've written over the years. Um, one of them is uh, Parents Should Trust Their Instincts kind of what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, so there's some resources there. I found um, some of the things that I 
touched on in terms of what is typical development and when you should be concerned is um, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, has an excellent section on their website uh, called Developmental Milestones. And parents, and they have brochures and pamphlets specifically geared to parents, as well as to share, you know, take this information into your pediatrician when you have some concerns and have them look at this and see whether your child may need some services or referral for services. Um, So that's a great, great resource. Um, There's another book that I love that's a few years old. It is called um, Quirky Kids that was written by a developmental pediatrician and really touches on the differences, um, developmental differences and what's kind of in the range of normal and what is an area that you need to be concerned about. Um, And um, so those are kind of some of the resources that I've used. Thank you. I I appreciate that recommendation. For our listeners who want to learn more about you and about your work, uh, tell us what is your website and also your email address. Okay. My website is www. DrSheroPsych.com. I'll spell it D R S H I R O P S Y C H.com. And my email address is info at DrSheroPsych.com. And feel free to email me if you'd like some resources or, you know, are interested in getting information or would like to send a referral. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Shiro. Um, you've, shell, you've shed so much light on any number of different topics, but even for me as a clinician to know just some baseline milestones, I think is really helpful to inform my care. And I'm sure our listeners have found the same. So thank you for coming today and, and sharing your expertise. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.